Welcome everybody back into Down the Line. As always, I'm your host Carson Breber, and today we are going to take a quick break from talking about the French Open, which is obviously going on right now, to talk to a guest that I feel incredibly lucky to have the chance to talk with today. If you're familiar with the history of tennis, you are familiar with him. He's Cliff Ritchie, former world number six, at least a quarterfinalist in all four Grand Slams, the number one ranked American in 1970 back when that really meant something, and a Davis Cup champion, and uh, we are incredibly lucky to have him on today. So, Cliff, how are you doing? I'm doing very good. I'm going to make one little correction there on your intro. Yes. Um, I was the first ever world points champion called the mm-hmm. International Grand Prix of Tennis in 1970. So. Mm-hmm. I never felt like I got enough credit for, I think, being the first world number one with a point system. Yeah, and that is a great point because it is obviously strange timing-wise that you know they were still going on sort of an antiquated idea when they had the point system ready to go. And obviously, you know that 1970 season was really incredible from you, and we will talk about that. And I don't want to sell you short there, um, but just looking at what's going on right now in tennis. The French Open is going on, and have you been watching that at all? Do you have any basic level thoughts on that? Well, actually, you know, before before the interview, uh, I was just uh, watching uh, uh, Dominic Thiem mm-hmm. and, uh, and Diego Schwartzman play their great match that just finished. And um, I'm telling you, these guys today, um, they're great athletes. Um, and really what I was impressed with today with uh, Thiem and Schwartzman is that it almost reminded me of uh, of the kind of tennis that was played 30 or 40 years ago mm. in that they used all the court. There were a lot of drop shots. They take advantage of some short balls and come in and finish a lot of the points or at least some of the points at the net. Yeah. And um, it really it was a great match. I mean, I, I tell you what, I, <laughs> I enjoyed that one today. I thought it was the match of the year, at least through the first four sets. It was really high quality, and as you mentioned, that kind of all-court tennis. So, I just read your book, Acing Depression, which is an exploration of of your uh, struggles with mental health and depression, and really just your life story, and we will talk about some of the greater themes of that book, but I did want to point out that, or at least bring up, that at two points in that book, and you wrote it over a decade ago, so a lot has changed since then, you say that you believe Rod Laver is the greatest tennis player of all time, and I would certainly have agreed with you at that point. So I'm interested, now that obviously so much has changed since then, do you stand by that opinion, or has that changed for you? I think it's changed somewhat. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, obviously, with uh, the top three guys uh, that we all know, Nadal, Federer, and and Djokovic, um, they had done more than I thought they would do as far as longevity. Right. And, and you know, just that one point on longevity is so good for the game. You know, um, when Rosewall Labor and some of my era played past 30, it was uh, it was kind of an amazing thing. Now, uh, it's, it's not that unusual for, uh, for a guy to win a slam at 35 or even 36. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just think that... Um, you know, at the time, and even today, if you really, you know, if you think about, um, it's an unusual achievement for Rod Laver to have won the Grand Slam before the game went open. So he wasn't playing against Hode and Rosewall and mm-hmm. Gonzalez, but he still won the Grand Slam in 1962. And 
then he went and played the one night stands with Hode and Rosewall and Gonzalez mm-hmm. for five years, six years, and then when it was open, came back and won it again yeah. seven years later, and it's uh, pretty dead gum incredible that somebody could uh, could do could do it that way. Yeah. It is one of the remarkable what-ifs that I like to think about in tennis history is what if not only Laver, but Rosewall and all the best guys were just all on the same tour for that entire stretch because obviously Rosewall and Laver were winning basically every pro slam, and that doesn't count in what we consider their quote-unquote final tally, even though if we did, Rosewall would actually have the most slams of anyone of all time. So... Speaking of that era, just in general, as we mentioned, your best year was in 1970. You were the U.S. number one. You achieved that title on this incredible 360 volley that you open your book with that I've had explained to me versus Stan Smith. You won the first ever Grand Prix circuit. You made two slam semis that year. And I think that that's a really fascinating era because in the start of 70s before Connors really asserts himself as the guy in 1974 and then you have Borg following shortly after... You have sort of this mixture of guys winning slams and fighting for the their place as world number one. You have Newcomb and Kodesh and Stan Smith and Nastasi and Ash and yourself. There wasn't that one dominant force on tour. So out of the all guys, all of the guys who really peaked in that era, your contemporaries, taking out Laver and Rosewall because they're in a different class. Who for you was the toughest to play against? Well, the toughest guy for me to play against um, really well, on, let's say, a fast surface, anything other than clay, um, was Arthur Ashe because of his mm. serve. I mean, mm-hmm. um, to give you an example of, of how how good this guy served, he played the final of a tournament on grass in Brisbane, Australia, back in, like, 1965 against John Newcomb. And I think the score was, like, 6-4, 6-4, 6-4. So it was three straight sets, not mm-hmm. even a deuce bet. And... He served, if I can remember, something on the order of 30 clean aces. Hmm. And, I mean, Newcomb was six foot one or two and a big reach. Mm-hmm. Ash had an unbelievable uh, serve for me to handle on a fast surface. But, uh, yeah, uh, we had a great era. Um, I started back in 64, five years before the tour went open. Mm-hmm. And it's from 64 to 68, uh, really, except for Rosewall, Waver, Gonzalez, um, yeah, we had Newcomb and, and Stan and Arthur, and I can keep naming them. And then, fortunately for me, um, I not only saw what it was like to play the tour when it was so-called amateur tennis. Mm-hmm. Everybody knew that it was as good as pro tennis. It's just we didn't have prize money. We we had our own league called the amateur circuit, but it was you know, money under the table. Um, right. <laughs> so I played four or five years of that. Um, and then, in 1968, the game went open, um, and I was able to, in the years following, the ten years following, um, play all of, you know, Laver, Rosewall, Gonzalez. I even played Lou Hogue in London mm-hmm. when he was 37 years old wow. in 1972. Um so, you know, I, I, I played guys like Beppe Merlo from Italy when he was 38 years old, all the way to playing the final of L.A. when I was 22 years old against the great Pancho Gonzalez when he was 41 years old. Mm. So, you know, I, I, I give some speeches at different tennis events in, 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 in uh, 
addition to my mental health advocacy. And one last point that I that I'd like to give people uh, is that I played in the final of tournaments, the 1949 U.S. champion Forest Hills and the 1979 wow. U.S. Open champion at Flushing Meadow. Yeah. And so out of all of those guys, because as you just mentioned, there's a wide variety of them from intersecting eras. On the flip side of what I just asked, as far as who was the toughest, was there a favorite for you to play against? Well, was there a favorite as far as being a top player and I felt like I owned it? Yeah, sure. Well, one of them was Manuel Orantes. Hmm. Um, I think on the regular tour, I don't think I ever lost to him. Wow. Beat him in the final of the South African Open, which at the time was one of the biggest seven tournaments in the world. And the other guy that I basically owned, and he would tell you that I do, <laughs> is John Kodish. Hmm. Interesting. So, uh, I, I liked it when I saw those guys' names, you know, up against me. And then the guy I loved playing, as far as we had some of the greatest matches I played, and by Steve Flink's estimation, one of the 40 greatest matches of all time. And I didn't have a bad record against him, but I, but I felt like I actually gave away a couple of matches to him, and that was Ken Rosewall. Yeah. We played... Uh, uh, a four-and-a-half-hour match at Wimbledon one year that I choked away, basically. I admit that. I lost, I think it was, you know, like 9-7 in the fifth, mm-hmm. and I, I had, oh, I don't even want to go into it. But, I, <laughs> uh, but And then I lost to him in the final of Cincinnati. Um, the next, uh, the year before, I had 5-2, 30-15 in the third, best of three, um, and ended up losing 9-7 in the third. But uh, I also beat him in the semifinals of Wembley in London, mm. the year that I won the Grand Prix, which was a huge match because it gave me a tie for the Grand Prix title, regardless of what I did uh, the next week in Stockholm. I only had to win two matches the next week in Stockholm, but it would have been much tougher if I hadn't beaten Rosewall in, in London the week before. But, you know, I loved playing him because we played a similar game. He couldn't blow me off the court. Mm-hmm. So, we were going to have great points. <laughs> yeah, right. So I do want to ask you about another great of not quite that era, but the subsequent era who your career did overlap with in Jimmy Connors because he wrote the forward of your book. And so to at least that point, you two had maintained that friendship. And that's interesting to me because obviously Jimmy is not someone who I think many people have been able to relate to over the years. Why do you think that you were able to relate to him and have that relationship with him? Jimmy, Jimmy had a, a he had an upbringing very similar to mine. His mother coached him. My father coached me. Mm-hmm. Um, their family was close. Mine was. Um, he he really was sort of brought up to be leery and think that everybody was sort of out to get him. You know, mm-hmm. and he really was. I mean, he was very sort of paranoid as to people taking advantage of him or whatever. Um, and interestingly, he was coached by by Pancho Segura as well. I have always given Pancho Gonzalez credit for having coached me more than anybody else except for my father. Mm-hmm. Um, and I played Jimmy when he was 19 years old in, in uh, California, in San Diego. It was part of actually the LA event. Um, I was number one in the country at the time, and he was just a, an up-and-coming 
great teenage prospect who had already had a few good wins. And we played a great match that night, and I lost seven, six, and a third. And mm. then uh, a few years later in, in England, uh, we spent a couple weeks leading into Wimbledon uh, in Birmingham and a couple, in another city. Uh, so we had a couple of weeks where he loved to practice, and he, he and, and so we, we practiced almost every day together. And I think he appreciated the fact that even though I wasn't totally out of the game, I was sort of on the down slope, mm. and um, and and yet I wasn't afraid to knock heads in practice and to give him what I could. Even 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 mention a few. We had dinner one night before Wimbledon, he was the defending champion that year, and we had dinner one night at a restaurant, and, and I said, Jimmy, going into Wimbledon here in a few days, what what's your attitude? And he said, well, I feel okay, you know, and I said, well, look, here's what you got to do, Jimmy. I said, you're the champion until the moment the tournament starts. Mm. I said, but the moment the tournament starts, you mentally take that Wimbledon trophy and put it back on the common shelf Mm. And you're not defending crap. <laughs> you, you, you're, you're equal with everybody else. So, you know, just go out there and try to win a tournament. And he looked at me, you know, and of course, like I said, he'd been around Segur and his mother and a lot of other greats. And, but he looked at me and he said, man, that's good stuff, you know. But, <laughs> uh, we just sort of bonded. And, yeah. uh, you know, neither one of us uh, liked agents. Mm. Uh, we were sort of rebels. So, you know, all in all, we just sort of bonded. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. So I yeah, do yeah. I do want to talk about the book that Jimmy Connors wrote the forward for, and that is Acing Depression, as I mentioned earlier, which you wrote over a decade ago. And you are an extremely outspoken mental health advocate, and you are open in this book about your struggles with depression throughout much of your life. And you address this in the book, but why did you feel like you had to write it? Like it was something that needed to be done. And then a decade plus later, what is your reflection on that process? Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I thought pretty long and hard actually before I did write it. Mm. Uh, a golf friend of mine said to me one day, why don't you write a book? I said, no, not, no. I said, I don't want to rehash an old tennis career, but I said, if it's the kind of book I, cause I'd come public with my depression at the time. Mm-hmm. I said, but if it's the kind of book that I think you're thinking about, and he said, well, it is. And he said, I, I think you could help some people. And, um, uh, you know, I, I came home and thought about it and, uh, I almost didn't do it because I really, you know, I, I've never liked these older players that want to still somehow hang around in some way. Yeah. And yet, and yet I thought, finally I thought to myself, because this is a nasty disease that I've, <laughs> mm-hmm. I've seen up close and personal. Um, and I thought, you know, if I could save one person from some of the misery that I've been through, then I don't care what anybody thinks. Right. And, so my daughter has her PhD in comparative literature from Princeton. How's that for being handy? <laughs> and, I, and I called her, and uh, we sat down, and we spent about five months. She uh, had all the questions written down over the summer of 06. She just kept, she'd wake up in the middle of the night and write it. And anyway, she had about 100 questions, and uh, it flowed from there. And uh, she did a great job of putting the book together. But I really wanted it to be a book that, yes, told some good tennis stories, and I think there's some really good ones in there, Mm -hmm. but also tells people that there is hope and that there is recovery 
from clinical depression, even bad cases of clinical depression. Yeah. And I think that that's part of why it is such a valuable and important book, because when you talk about the retired players, you know, trying to stay relevant in some way, that is not what this feels like at all. You do have those great tennis stories, but then there's also that overarching message that is obviously at the core of it and is the most important takeaway. So when I look at the landscape of, of the tour, obviously you can't link depression to a single factor or anything like that. And I don't want to oversimplify any issues, but I do think that there are some parts of how tennis is structured professionally that are incredibly difficult mentally. And so also some aspects of your journey in that respect. And I think that that starts for a lot of people with just this really intense need for success. And for you, you came from a tremendously successful tennis family. Your sister, Nancy, was a Grand Slam champion. Your dad, who you mentioned earlier, was a great player and a coach. And you refer to your your family in your book as Richie Incorporated, that sort of intense environment where, you know, there's really that incredible drive to win. So when you reflect on growing up in that environment as a tennis player and as a person, how do you think it led to some of your long-term success on the tennis court? And also, how did it affect your psyche and your mental approach to the game as a player? Well, you know, they, they, they all relate to one another in a way. Everything that you just said, meaning um, I always was a person that had high anxieties for whatever reason. I think mm-hmm. I inherited those. Uh, my grandfather, I think, had uh, high anxieties and probably some depression that we look back on now and see. But I had high anxieties, and anxieties are very much related to depression. You know, they're kissing cousins. Right. Um, and, yes, we had an intense, intense family. And, uh, you know, it, but here's what I, I say, you know, about our, everything. Um, uh, my big thrill, really, in tennis from the start was feeling myself getting better, mm. feeling my skills improving. Knowing that, wow, I'm 16 and I just won the Texas Men's Championship. Maybe I'm ready to go another step. And then I was and I I, I improved. And so more than even winning a particular event, the coin of my realm was how good my skill was at any given time. And for the first nine years of the tour, from 64 through 71 or two, um, my skill was in good shape. Once I started losing skill, and I did, and my backhand sort of went off, I had an unorthodox backhand, and uh, I got to where I kind of had the yips with it, Um, I worked hard to get my game back, but I really never did once it went off in about 72 and 3. I played five more years, but I look back, and of course now I know that it sparked me losing my skill losing a lot of it, let's put it that way, more Mm -hmm. than I wanted to lose of it, put me into clinical depression. And I was a functional depressive, but I drank too much, I didn't sleep that good, Mm -hmm. Uh, I was out of sorts with everybody and everything, and I played another five or six years, but uh, as you said, the tour life's tough anyway, and you throw that in on top of the time changes and the, you know, travel, jet lag, and the fact that you have to be super fit. Um, right. Even when I wasn't playing that well in the latter stages of my career, I still won some tournaments, and I still had to practice all year and be fit. Uh, so it wasn't, you know, the last five or six years were were filled with a lot of clinical depression that I really didn't 
identify as that. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what was wrong. I just knew something was very wrong. So for those years when your performance started to slip a bit and your heart wasn't in it in the same way and you were dealing with that depression, why do you feel like it was that you couldn't retire and that you continued to hang on and keep playing as a professional? Well, um, my game probably started to go off in probably 72, 73, maybe even a little bit in 71. In 1972, um, I signed a four-year contract to play 26 weeks a year with Lamar Hunt, Mm. WCT, and it was the largest money contract ever signed in tennis up to that point. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I... (laughs) I, I was going to play through the contract, so that took me right. that took me June of '76, and then basically I played about another two years, uh, and then I did retire. But I'm glad I I, I, I fulfilled my commitment. I didn't mm-hmm. play just awful, you know. I mean, I won some tournaments, and you know, in 1973, I think I was on the computer in September of that year at number 16. Mm-hmm. But I, I I felt like that my game was really on the downhill slope at that time. Yeah, and you say at one point in your book that your, quote, drug of choice was success. And then at another point, you also say that one of the bad things about tour is if you play more than a few in a row, you're never able to just sit back and enjoy it as much as you'd like. And you talked about how throughout much of your time on tour, it was just that improvement in your ability that was driving your contentment. Was there a moment in the chase that you can specifically remember, the chase of the results and of that improvement, when you sort of had that realization that this long-term fulfillment that maybe I'm looking for from this sport probably isn't going to come from success right now? Well, no. You know, when I started out, you you know, I go back to, you know, I mean, in my case as a tennis player, I can tell you at the age of 12 which day, uh, I remember the day that I decided that I was going to become a tennis player. Of course, it was in the family and it was there to do, but... Uh, no, uh, from that first day uh, back in the spring of 59 uh, until, uh, let's say, I peaked from 68 through, you know, I mean, 72 is actually a very good year as well. Um, I, I feel like what I was after, uh, I got. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I can remember as a, just a kid beating on the backboard. Uh, at a club my dad was at in Houston that he was a pro at, and they had gotten on me for something that day, and I got mad, and I ran down to that backboard, and I was hitting balls against the backboard, and I was literally out loud saying, I'm going to be a Davis Cup champion. I'm going to be a Davis Cup champion. <laughs> and and, uh, and I was. <laughs> and I said, no, tennis, tennis gave me everything that I have, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, now, was there one moment where I said, okay, I've peaked, this is it, but... No, it didn't work that way, but mm-hmm. um, it um, it's a weird life. You know, like I said in the book, uh, it is tough to enjoy it when you're doing it. Uh, you know, I used to practice with a kid here in town. I call him a kid. He's probably 20 years old. I was playing the 35 and over senior tour against Smith and Labor, Roswell, and mm-hmm. so it was very competitive. I was like 36, 37, and uh, I said to him one day, I said, look, I said, you're never going to be away from pressure. I said, here's the deal. I said, on tour, if you have a couple of bad weeks in a row, now you're really scraping to start playing good again. So mm-hmm. the pressure's really on. Yeah. On the other hand, on the other hand, on the pro tour, when you're a pro, 
you know, I had instances a couple of times where, you know, I won two tournaments in South America and was committed to a third week, and I won that third week. It wasn't easy. Mm -hmm. It's what I call adverse pressure. So even on a winning streak, you know that you don't want to be a wimp and not be able to get up for that third week or fourth week or whatever it might be. So losing or winning, the pressure is always there. And you're also out there doing all of this alone at all times. You win alone, you lose alone, and at the end of every tournament, there's only one winner. And that is something that is unique to individual sports. And most people in their athletic careers, even at the professional level, can't really relate to. So just for tennis players in general, how much harder do you feel like that makes tour life mentally? Well, you're right, and, uh, you know, I kid all the time that uh, out of the probably 1,500 tour matches that I played, I haven't tied one yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, um, yeah, I mean, you know, you you do get used to that fact. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's, it is. It's, uh, it's being alone in a sport with uh, all the pressures that uh, and more. Yeah. People can watch on TV like today with Team and, and Schwartzman. I mean, it's there in living color. Right. And, um, you know, uh, uh, the good thing that I kind of liked about it was that um, unlike politics or business shenanigans, I liked the fact that it was pretty darn clean. You went out there and there was either going to be a win or a loss. And mm-hmm. you, you, could, I like, you could pretty much control the outcome if you were good enough. Right. But I think that for a lot of people, that can also be really difficult to cope with because then if you have that shortcoming, there's really nowhere to point other than I am the I am what went wrong here because it is so clean like that. Do you feel like that is something that, and I think we see this all the time, it's just harder to, there, it's just a more mentally taxing sport in tennis because there is nowhere else to point that finger. Do you agree with that? I agree with that. And actually, I thought, a little bit about how today's players have a whole entourage of trainers and mm-hmm. doctors, whatever the heck they got. They got a bunch of people, and that's good if they're comfortable with that. I wouldn't like that personally. Yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to have to go out when I know that the trainer has, you know, done what he's done for me. Uh, with my coach, my hitting partner, uh, maybe my agents hanging around, mm-hmm. and 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 blow a big match and have to look at six or seven faces. I'd rather have blown a big match and only have to look at my dad. I don't need right. all those other people. And I was just about to ask you about how the entourage dynamic has, from your perspective, changed what you imagine life on tour would be like. Because in your book, at one point, you say the tour lifestyle is not conducive to friendships. You're tired all the time. You don't feel like doing a lot. And we have seen now that tour doesn't seem to be as much about that community of players and it's more about you have your group that you stick within and it's that real us against them mentality so you have that support system and as you mentioned that also comes with that added pressure of needing to perform for those people from your perspective obviously not being a part of the current tour but nonetheless having been part of the tour for a very long time do you think that that shift away from being with other players and towards just being with your own people all the time is helpful or hurtful for the most part? Because it can be sort of isolating from the rest of of these people who you have this fraternity with. Yeah, you know, I don't think, honestly, I don't think it makes uh, that much difference, really. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, uh, you've got your practice uh, that day. 
then you maybe have a match that day. Uh, then you got to, you know, find find a, a sustenance of, of food to get in you. Uh, you know, transportation back and forth to the court. Uh, even in my time, you know, of course, again, Richie Inc. was not that social with everybody else. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, I, I actually can maybe relate to the seclusion these guys have within their own camps right. uh, these days more, more, more than uh, the players of my era that tended to go out to dinner together and socialize more. Um, but when you get right down to it, if you're, you know, if you're a pro, I mean, if you're a guy that, you know, is out there and it, this is what you do, this is what, you know, your, your uh, uh, creative expertise is, then it's what I said a minute ago. It's hotel, transportation, practice, match, eat, go to bed and do it all over again. And whether you're with your entourage or some other guys, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, I think that that's a fair point. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I do want to look at one last thing within tennis culture that I just think is really abnormal when you compare it to a lot of other sports. And it's also sort of a global versus American thing. But for the most part right now, the best tennis talents in the world don't even go to high school. They are homeschooled or they go to an academy and tennis is the priority over school. Overwhelmingly, you don't go to college. And so you just don't have that normal progression. You dropped out of high school as well to pursue life on tour. How do you feel like the fact that not only are you not playing in team sport and so you're alone already in that respect, you're sort of thrust into that adult life earlier? How do you feel like that affects a tennis player's progression as a person and as an athlete and just the overall experience with the sport and and the tour? Yeah, it's a good question, and it's uh, definitely a factor. We have had, um, you know, uh, Jennifer Capriati is a pretty good example. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have had we have had young talents, uh, and you know when you say young, okay, yeah, I was young. I went on tour when I was well, really, I was well seventeen officially. But even when I was sixteen, mm-hmm. I was playing a lot of events on, on the men's tour. Um, and and I'll be honest with you, um, you know, and I said it in the book. I mean. I've never adapted to, to the so-called normal routines of life. I mean, mm-hmm. I've never done a nine-to-five. I've never had a boss, except, say, in Davis Cup, have a captain or a coach, but that was only for a few weeks a year. I dictated everything that I did, my schedule. You know, I, I was the boss. Uh, right. But, but, but the idea, and it's show business, any, any, probably any business, if you get right down to it, if you take a kid that is between the age of 14 and even 18 or 19 and throw him out in the, to that, to that, I call it a competitive pit, that's mm-hmm. what it is, and world travel, uh, adjusting to the pressures, and if you're good, oh, wow, then you've got agents making deals for you, mm-hmm. and you know, you're a piece of meat that's being sold, or you may look at it a different way and say, hey, I'm great and I'm being sold, but, I, but whatever. There's just all this that's going on, and it can really end up being where uh, a person, you know, I mean, I, I think an interesting study would be some of the players that look like they came out of it normal, Mm-hmm. Uh, what are what are some of the 40, 45-year-olds that we sort of have lost track of? And what is their life like now, particularly if they were a phenom? 
So it, it, there's a lot that, uh, you know, the one thing that maybe offsets it and maybe softens the blow just a little bit is that if you're very good for even a few years, hopefully you've saved enough money where you don't have to rely on the rest of the world. And if you're not so good mentally and psychologically, uh, there's at least a little payoff there. But it's an interesting question, and it's definitely a factor as far as the so-called Hollywood teen star becomes mm-hmm. dysfunctional. Do you feel like you were at all protected from that because you were so tied to your family throughout this entire experience? Well, um, uh, one thing is that when I did quit high school and went out onto the then amateur tour, didn't know that I would be able to make a great living out of it eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, I I had planned on teaching, you know, like my dad did. If I didn't make it on, you know, I thought, wow, if I made it on the Jack Kramer one night stand tour, that would make me some money and whatnot. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I I think that in some ways, even though I had a lifestyle that I kind of basically just described, um, uh, that the idea that we were Richie Inc., meaning we were, our business was tennis. I had a whole family that even my mom, we all were in tennis. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I think that buffered some of it because I had so many people right there with me, whether by phone or, or, or actually being with me, that could relate to everything I did, and, and, and that was helpful. Yeah. I do have a question for you beyond the scope of tennis. It is still within sports, and it is still regarding mental health and depression at large, and I don't know if you saw this, but a few weeks ago, Skip Bayless went on TV, and I know that you are a Texas native, so he was talking about... Cowboys quarterback Dak Prescott, who had just shared that he had struggled with depression after a personal tragedy, and Skip Bayless, who is one of the most influential figures in sports media, went out there and said that it was a sign of weakness. So what is your reaction to the fact that stuff like this still happens and is perpetuated by these influential people? And how do we progress progress beyond a response like that, not just with athletes, but with people at large in this country? So Skip Bayless said that uh, clinical depression is is a, a, a sign of weakness. Is that what you said? What his exact sentiment was, was that as the leader of a team, one should not display any quote-unquote weakness and that sharing his personal struggles with depression was an example of that, that other teams would try to exploit in some way. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I, I think that... Um, you know, like in the military, as an example, they'll tell you out. They'll tell you uh, on the surface that they're trying to deal with mental illness, but it is viewed as a weakness mm-hmm. um, uh, in the internals of the military. It's still viewed as as a weakness and something that is very difficult for the you know the generals and the, the other uh, leaders to to uh, know what to do with. Um, I think that. Um, you know, I'll give you one thing that happened to me that Skip would maybe be interested in knowing, and I don't mind him saying that because there are a lot of different viewpoints on all of that. And then mm-hmm. if you have depression mixed in with uh, competition, then it's not just depression you're talking about. Skip's talking then about the competitive side and what that might do, and I understand that. Mm-hmm. My, I have a good friend that's the old football player actor Ed Marinero. And we were at a celebrity golf tournament in Denver one year, and we were talking about uh, my problem and 
and, and others. Um, and Eddie looked at me and he said, Cliff, he said, you have the successful man's disease. Mm. And if you look at the, you know, the history uh, and the people, the people that have had uh, clinical depression, it's a, it's a Hall of Fame list of people that have, um, have done unbelievable things in their profession, right. uh, either, either in music, acting, athletics, or whatever. Um, and, and for me personally, I'll just say this, and I'll end up with this on this subject. Um, my anxieties and depression probably were a plus if you go to the very bottom line because mm. it drove me. It mm-hmm. was something that really made me uh, want to, uh, as you said earlier, be successful and get what I wanted as a tonic for my ill emotions. Mm-hmm. Well, I do want to ask you one question, just going back to tennis at large right now, um, not relating to what we've just been talking about, because as someone personally, me, who is eternally hopeful that American men's tennis is going to turn around and return to the glory days, which I cannot remember, although they were from basically the inception of the sport through the turn of the century, that is before my time. As you watch some of the guys on tour right now, do you have any favorite young American talents or just any hope in general that that Grand Slam winning talent is coming around the corner? Because obviously the women are doing great, but it should be on both sides. Yeah, you know, we've got some young good guys that, uh, you know, that have talent, obviously, and, and uh, but it's, it's, uh, it's really sort of hard to believe, you know, that we haven't had... Um, I guess we haven't had a Grand Slam champion on the American side since Roddick at the Open in 02. Is that right? That's correct. You know, and that's just hard to believe. I mean, that's probably a first in the sport as mm-hmm. far as the history of our sport. Um, I, I, I really don't have an answer for it. I, I, I sometimes wonder, um, you know, what the USTA, with all of its multiple millions of dollars and now National Tennis Center, and mm-hmm. um, they, they've certainly thrown money at it and tried to, to develop champions, but uh, I don't know. You know, I don't, I, I don't have an answer for it. I don't, I, I you know, there's, there's, all, there's only a few things that make a champion. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's the iron will it's athletic ability and it's the mechanical shots and if you got that you got it so I mean yeah. I don't know where the, I don't know where they're going wrong to be honest with you and it's fascinating because we have as deep a pool of quality pros as any country but just don't have that one top end talent we're right now at the first time since certainly since the ATP kept track of rankings, and even if you go back to just the written rankings by media from before then, there is no American in the top 20 right now, which is just completely unprecedented on the men's side, of course. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on to talk with me today. This was a tremendous honor and a pleasure. And Carson, let me just say one more thing. Of course. I want people to know that there is help if you suffer clinical depression. I want people to know that it is a disease. It's not just because you, uh, you know, here's the deal. We give everybody the right to be sick from the Adam's apple down. Hmm. But as soon as you're sick from the Adam's apple up, it's either spiritual or you're thinking wrong or, look, it's the same cell 
falls above the Adam's apple. And mm. for whatever reason that a person has depression, there is excellent help. Uh, medication is not to cover the problem. It's like insulin for a diabetic. It's mm. to potentially uh, uh, get the chemicals better because you can have, you know, the, the, the back in. So I just want people to know that uh, even if you have to go up the back fire escape to get to a guy to get for help, do that too. Mm -hmm. Our society is still not ready. Uh, we're still not open enough about it. And that yeah. was one of the reasons I, I became an advocate. But uh, just if people can hear my voice right now, I was out. I was on my back. I was in a room with taped windows, black trash bags over my windows. I had world titles, all the money I needed in my bank account, and a beautiful family, and I was non-functional. Mm -hmm. I sought help, I got help, and I've been able to live a productive life since then. So seek out help. There's help to be had. I think that's obviously an incredibly important message and something that we don't hear enough and we don't talk about enough because there is still, unfortunately, that stigma about, as you put it, illness from the Adam's apple up. So again, Cliff, I really can't thank you enough for coming on today. This was fantastic, and you enjoy the rest of your day and the rest of the French Open. Thank you, Carson. I have really enjoyed your show, my friend. Thank you very much.